Hey, this is Nivy. You're listening to the Naval Podcast. This is one giant megasode that collects every episode we've done on getting rich. All of it based on his tweet storm of how to get rich without getting lucky. I've collected them all here because we're going to switch topics to the new topic of happiness on the next episode. We've published one of these giant megasodes before, but this one's even bigger. It's about three and a half hours long. It covers all the tweets from the How to Get Rich tweet storm, plus all the Q&A that we did after that, plus 10 minutes of bonus material at the very end that we've never released. The overall sound quality of this megasode improves a lot after the first hour. You can find a link to a clean transcript in the show notes, or if you go to the website, nav.al. There's no .com at the end. I hope you enjoy. You probably know Naval from his Twitter account, and we're going to be talking about his epic tweet storm on how to get rich without getting lucky. We're going to go through most of the tweets in detail, give Naval a chance to expand on them, and just generally riff on the topic. He'll probably throw in some ideas that he hasn't even published before. He's also the co-founder of AngelList and Epinions. He's a prolific tech investor in companies like Twitter, Uber, and many more. And I'm the co-founder of AngelList with Naval, and I also co-authored the Venture Hacks blog with him back in the day. Yeah, the How to Get Rich Tweet Storm definitely hit a nerve. A lot of people say it was helpful, reach across aisles, and people outside of the tech industry, people in all walks of life, people do want to know how to solve their money problems. And everyone vaguely knows that they want to be wealthy, but they don't have a good set of principles to do it by. What's the difference between wealth, money, and status? Wealth is the thing that you really want. Wealth is assets that earn while you sleep. Wealth is the factory that the robots is cranking out things. Wealth is the computer program that's running at night that's serving other customers. Wealth is even money in the bank that is being reinvested into other assets and into other businesses. Even a house can be a form of wealth because you can rent it out, although that's probably a lower use of productivity in the land than actually doing some commercial enterprise. So my definition of wealth is much more businesses and assets that can earn while you sleep. But really the reason you want wealth is because it buys your freedom. So you don't have to wear a tie like a collar around your neck. So you don't have to wake up at 7 a.m. and rush to work and sit in commute traffic. So you don't have to waste away your entire life grinding all the productive hours into a way into a soulless job that doesn't fulfill you. So the purpose of wealth is freedom. It's nothing more than that. It's not to buy fur coats or drive Ferraris or sail yachts or jet around the world in your Gulfstream. That stuff gets really boring and really stupid really fast. It's really just so that you are your own sovereign individual. You're not going to get that unless you really want it. And the entire world wants it. And the entire world is working hard at it. And to some extent, it is competitive. It's a positive sum game, but there are competitive elements to it because there's a finite amount of resources right now in society. And to get the resources to do what you want, you have to stand out. Money is how we transfer wealth. Money is social credits. It is the ability to have credits and debits on other people's time. If I do my job right, if I create value for society, society says, oh, thank you. We owe you something in the future for the work that you did in the past. Here's a little IOU. Let's call that money. And that money gets debased because people steal the IOUs. The government prints extra IOUs. People renege on their IOUs. But really what money is trying to be is it's trying to be a reliable IOU from society that you are owed something for something you or someone who gave you the money did in the past. 
and we can transfer these IOUs around. So really, money is how we transfer wealth. There are fundamentally two huge games in life that people play. One is the money game, because money is not going to solve all your problems, but it's going to solve all your money problems. So I think that people know that. They realize that, so they want to make money. But at the same time, many of them deep down believe that they can't make it. They don't want any wealth creation to happen. So they virtue signal by attacking the whole enterprise, by saying, well, making money is evil and you shouldn't do it, blah, blah, blah. But what they're trying to do is they're actually playing the other game, which is a status game. They're trying to be high status in the eyes of other people watching by saying, well, I don't need money. We don't want money. And then status is just your ranking in the social hierarchy. So wealth is not a zero-sum game. Everybody in the world can have a house. Because you have a house doesn't take away from my ability to have a house. If anything, the more houses that are built, the easier it becomes to build houses, the more we know about building houses, and just the more people that can have houses. So wealth is a very positive-sum game. We create things together. We're starting this endeavor to create this, hopefully, piece of art that explains what we're doing. At the end of it, something brand new will be created. It's a positive-sum game. Status, on the other hand, is a zero-sum game. It's a very old game. We've been playing it since monkey tribes, and it's hierarchical. Who's number one? Who's number two? Who's number three? And for number three to move to number two, number two has to move out of that slot. So status is a zero-sum game. Politics is an example of a status game. Even sports is an example of a status game. To be the winner, there must be a loser. I don't fundamentally love status games. They play an important role in our society, so we figure out who's in charge. But fundamentally, you play them because they're a necessary evil. The problem is on an evolutionary basis, like if you go back thousands of years, status is a much better predictor of survival than wealth is. You couldn't have wealth before the farming age, before farmers, because you couldn't store things. Hunter-gatherers carried everything on their backs. So hunter-gatherers lived entirely in status-based societies. Farmers started going to wealth-based societies, and the modern industrial economies are much more heavily wealth-based societies. But there's always a subtle competition going on between status and wealth. For example, when journalists attack rich people or attack the technology industry, they're really bidding for status. They're saying, no, the people are more important, and I, the journalist, represent the people, and therefore I am more important. The problem is that by playing these status games, to win at a status game, you have to put somebody else down. That's why you should avoid status games in your life, because they make you into an angry, combative person. You're always fighting to put other people down, to put yourself and the people that you like up. And they're always going to exist. There's no way around it. But just realize that most of the times when you're trying to create wealth, you're actually getting attacked by someone else. And they're trying to look like a goody two shoes. But really what they're doing is they're trying to up their own status at your expense. They're just playing a different game, and it's a worse game. It's a zero-sum game instead of a positive-sum game. One thing you mentioned before the interview that stuck with me was the idea that you think everyone can become rich, and that perhaps some of the ways of getting rich or the idea of wealth is vilified by some people in other countries. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think there's this notion that making money is evil, right? It's like rooted all the way back down to money is the root of all evil. People think that the bankers steal our money. And, you know, it's somewhat true in that in a lot of the world, there's a lot of theft going on all the time. The history of the world, in some sense, is this predator-prey relationship between makers and takers. There are people who go out and create things and build things and work hard on things. And then there are people who come along and take with a sword or a gun or taxes or crony capitalism or communism or what have you. There's all these different methods to steal. 
even in nature, there are more parasites than there are non-parasitical organisms. You have a ton of parasites in you who are living off of you, and the better ones are symbiotic, they're giving something back, but there are a lot that are just taking. That's just the nature of how any complex system is built. But what I am focused on is true wealth creation. It's not about taking money. It's not about taking something from somebody else, but it's from creating abundance. Obviously, there's not a finite number of jobs or a finite amount of wealth. Otherwise, we would still be sitting around in caves, figuring out how to divide a piece of the firewood and, you know, the occasional dead deer. So most of the wealth in civilization, in fact, not most, all of it has been created. And it got created from somewhere. It got created from people. It got created from technology, got created from productivity, got created from hard work. So this idea that it's stolen is, I think, this horrible zero-sum game that people who are trying to gain status play. But the reality is everyone can be rich. And we can see that by seeing that in the first world, everyone is richer than almost anyone who was alive 200 years ago. 200 years ago, Nobody had antibiotics, nobody had cars, nobody had electricity, nobody had the iPhone. So all of these things are inventions that have made us wealthier as a species. Today, I would rather be a poor person in a first world country than be a rich person in Louis XIV's France. I'd rather be a poor person today than an aristocrat back then. And that's just because of wealth creation. The engine of technology is science that is applied for the purpose of creating abundance. So I think fundamentally, everybody can be wealthy. And the thought experiment I want you to think through is imagine if everybody had the knowledge of a good software engineer and a good hardware engineer. If you could go out there and you could build robots and computers and bridges and program them, let's say every human knew how to do that. What do you think society would look like in 20 years? My guess is what would happen is we would build robots, machines, software, and hardware to do everything, and we would all be living in massive abundance. We would essentially be retired in the sense that none of us would have to work for any of the basics. We'd even have robotic nurses. We'd have like machine-driven hospitals. We'd have self-driving cars. We'd have farms that are 100% automated. We'd have clean energy. So at that point, we could use technology breakthroughs to get everything that we wanted. And if anyone is still working at that point, they're working as a form of expressing their creativity. They're working because it's in them to contribute and to build and design things. But I don't think capitalism is evil. Capitalism is actually good. It's just that it gets hijacked. It gets hijacked by improper pricing of externalities. It gets hijacked by improper deals where like, you have corruption or you have monopolies. Overall, capitalism is intrinsic to the human species. Capitalism is not something we invented. Capitalism is not even something we discovered. It is innate to us in every exchange that we have. When you and I exchange information, I want some information back from you. I give you information. You give me information. If we weren't having a good information exchange, you'd go talk to somebody else. So the notion of exchange and keeping track of credits and debits, this is built into us as flexible social animals. We are the only animals in the animal kingdom that cooperate across genetic boundaries. Most animals don't even cooperate, but when they do, they cooperate only in packs where they co-evolve together and they share blood. So they have some shared interests. Humans don't have that. And what lets us cooperate? It's because we can keep track of debits and credits, who put in how much work, who contributed how much. That's all free market capitalism is. So I strongly believe that it is innate to the human species and we are going to create more and more wealth and abundance for everybody. Everybody can be wealthy, everybody can be retired, everybody can be successful. It is merely a question of education.
and desire. You have to want it. If you don't want it, that's fine. Then you opt out of the game. But don't try and put down the people who are playing the game because that's the game that keeps you in a comfortable, warm bed at night. That's the game that keeps a roof over your head. That's a game that keeps your supermarket stock. That's the game that keeps the iPhone buzzing in your pocket. So it is a beautiful game that is worth playing ethically, rationally, morally, socially for the human race. And it's going to continue to make us all richer and richer until we have massive wealth creation for anybody who wants it. And it's not just individuals secretly despising wealth, right? There's countries, groups, political parties that overtly despise wealth or at least seem to. That's right. And so what those countries, political parties and groups are reduced to playing the zero sum game of status and the process to destroy wealth creation, they drag everybody down to their level, which is why the U.S. is a very popular country for immigrants, because it's the American dream. Anyone can come here, be poor and then work really hard and make money and get wealthy, but even just make some basic money for their lives. Obviously, the definition of wealth is different for different people. A first world citizen's definition of wealth might be, oh, I have to make millions of dollars and I'm completely done. Whereas to a third world poor immigrant just entering the country, and we were poor immigrants who came here when I was fairly young to the United States, wealth may just be a much lower number. It may just be like, I don't have to work a manual labor job for the rest of my life that I don't want to work. But groups that despise it will essentially bring the entire group down to that level. If you get too many takers and not enough makers, society falls apart. You end up with a communist country, look at Venezuela, right? They were so busy taking and dividing and reallocating that people are literally starving in the streets and losing kilograms of body weight every year just through sheer starvation. Another way to think about it is imagine an organism that has too many parasites. You actually need some small number of parasites to stay healthy. And you need a lot of symbiotes, like all the mitochondria in all of our cells that help us respirate and burn oxygen. These are symbiotes that help us survive. We can survive without them. But to me, those are partners in the wealth creation that creates the human body. But if you just were filled with parasites, if you got infected with worms or a virus or bacteria that were purely parasitical, you would die. So any organism can only withstand a small number of parasites. And when the parasitic element gets too far out of control, you die. So, you know, that again, I'm talking about ethical wealth creation. I'm not talking about monopolies. I'm not talking about crony capitalism. I'm not talking about mispriced externalities like the environment. I'm talking about free minds and free markets, small scale exchange between humans that's voluntary and doesn't have an outsized impact on others. But I think that kind of wealth creation, if a society does not respect it, if a group does not respect it, that society will plunge into ruin and darkness. Obviously, we want to be wealthy and we want to get there in this lifetime without having to rely on luck. A lot of people think making money is about luck. It's not. It's about becoming the kind of person that makes money. You know, I like to think that if I lost all my money and if you drop me on a random street in any English-speaking country, within five to 10 years, I'd be wealthy again, <laughs> right? Because it's just a skill set that I've developed and I think anyone can develop. You know, in a thousand parallel universes, you want to be wealthy in 999 of them. You don't want to be wealthy in the 50 of them where you got lucky. So we want to factor luck out of it. There's really four kinds of luck that we were talking about. This came from a book, P. Marka, uh, Mark Andreessen wrote a blog post about it. But there's different kinds of luck. The first kind of luck you might just say is like blind luck, where I just got lucky because something completely out of my control happened. You know, that's fortune, that's fate, etc. Then there's luck that comes through persistence, hard work, hustle, motion, which is when you're just running around creating lots of opportunities, you're generating a lot of energy, you're doing a lot of things, lots of things will just get stirred up in the dust 
it's almost like mixing a, a petri dish and seeing what combines or, or mixing a bunch of reagents and seeing what combines you're just generating enough force and hustle and energy that luck will find you a third way is that you just become very good at spotting luck so if you are very skilled in a field you will notice when a lucky break happens in that field when other people who aren't attuned to it won't notice. So you become sensitive to luck and that's through skill and knowledge and work. And then the last kind of luck is the weirdest, hardest kind, but that's what we want to talk about, which is where you build a unique character, a unique brand, a unique mindset, where then luck finds you. For example, let's say that you're the best person in the world at deep sea underwater diving and you're known to like take on deep sea underwater dives that nobody else will even attempt to dare and then by sheer luck somebody finds a sunken treasure ship off the coast they can't get at well their luck just became your luck because they're going to come to you to get that treasure and you're going to get paid for it now that's an extreme example but it's just showing how like the person who got lucky by finding the treasure chest, that was blind luck. But them coming to you and asking you to extract it and having to give you half, that's not luck. You created your own luck. You put yourself in a position to be able to capitalize on that luck or to attract that luck when nobody else has created that opportunity for themselves. So when we talk about without getting lucky, we want to be deterministic. We don't want to leave it to chance. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on the idea that in a thousand parallel universes, you want to get rich in 999 of them? I think some people are going to see that and say, that sounds impossible, sounds like it's too good to be true. No, I don't think it's impossible. I think that you may have to work a little bit harder at it, given your starting circumstances. I mean, remember, I started as a poor kid in India, right? So if I can make it, anybody can in that sense. Now, obviously, I had all my limbs and I had my mental faculties and I did have an education. So there are some prerequisites you can't get past. But if you're listening to this video or podcast, you probably have the requisite means at your disposal, which is a functioning body and a functioning mind. And I've encountered plenty of bad luck along the way. The first little fortune that I made, I instantly lost in the stock market. The second little fortune that I made, or I should have made, I got cheated by my business partners. It's only the third time around has been a charm. And even then, it has been a slow and steady struggle. And I haven't made money in my life in one giant payout. It's always been a whole bunch of small things piling up. So it's more about consistently creating wealth by creating businesses and creating opportunities and creating investments. It hasn't been like a giant one-off thing. My personal wealth has not been generated by one big year. It just stacks up little bit chips at a time more options, more businesses, more investments, more things I can do. Same way, someone like a Nenad, Elisertis, he's building his brand online, he's building videos. It's not like any one video is going to suddenly shower him with riches overnight. It's going to be a long lifetime of learning, of reading, of creating, that's just going to compound. So we're talking about getting wealthy so you can retire, so you have your freedom. Not retire in the sense that you don't do anything, but in the sense that you don't have to be any place you don't want to be. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And you can wake up when you want. You can sleep when you want. You don't have a boss. That's freedom. So we're talking about enough wealth to get to freedom. And especially thanks to the internet these days, those opportunities are massively abundant. I, in fact, have too many ways to make money. I don't have enough time. I literally have opportunities pouring out of my ears. And the thing I keep running out of is time. There's just so many ways to create wealth, to create products, to create businesses, to create opportunities and to, as a byproduct, get paid by society that I just can't even handle it all. 
I think it's pretty interesting that the first three kinds of luck that you described, there are very common cliches for them that everybody knows. And then for that last kind of luck that comes to you out of the unique way that you act, there's no real cliche for it. So for the first three kinds, there's dumb luck or blind luck. That's the first kind of luck. The second kind of luck, there's the cliche that fortune favors the bold. That's a person who gets lucky just by stirring the pot and acting. The third kind of luck, people say that chance favors the prepared mind. But for the fourth kind of luck, there is not really a common cliche out there that matches the unique character of your action, which I think is interesting and perhaps an opportunity. And it also just shows that people aren't necessarily taking advantage of that kind of luck the way they should be. I think also at that point, it starts becoming so deterministic that it stops being luck. So the definition starts fading from luck to more destiny. So I would characterize that fourth one is you build your character in a certain way, and then your character becomes your destiny. One of the things I think that is important to making money, you want the kind of reputation that makes people do deals through you. You know, I use the example of like, if you're a great diver, then treasure hunters will come and give you a piece of treasure for your diving skills. If you're a trusted, reliable, high integrity, long-term thinking deal maker, then when other people want to do deals, but they don't know how to do them in a trustworthy manner with strangers, they will literally approach you and give you a cut of the deal or offer you a unique deal just because of the integrity and reputation that you've built up. Warren Buffett, he gets offered deals and he gets to buy companies and he gets to buy warrants and bail out banks and do things that other people can't do because of his reputation. But of course, that's fragile. It has accountability on the line. It has a strong brand on the line. And as we will talk about later, that comes with accountability attached. But I would say your character, your reputation, these are things that you can build that then will let you take out advantages of opportunities that other people may characterize as lucky, but you know that it wasn't luck. You said that this fourth kind of luck is more or less a destiny. There's a quote from that original book that was in Mark's blog post from Benjamin Disraeli, who I think was the former prime minister of the UK. The quote to describe this kind of luck was, we make our fortunes and we call them fate. There were a couple other interesting things about this kind of luck that were mentioned in the blog post. I think it'll be good for the listeners to hear about is that this fourth kind of luck can almost come out of eccentric ways that you do your things and that eccentricity is not necessarily a bad thing in this case. In fact, it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely, because the world is a very efficient place. So everyone has dug through all the obvious places to dig. And so to find something that's new and novel and uncovered, it helps to be operating on a frontier, where right there you have to be a little eccentric to be out on the frontier by yourself. And then you just have to be willing to dig deeper than other people do, deeper than seems irrational just because you're interested. Yeah, the two quotes that I've seen that express this kind of luck, in addition to that Benjamin Disraeli one, are this one from Sam Altman, where he said, extreme people get extreme results. I think that's pretty nice. And then there's this other one from Jeffrey Pfeffer, who is a professor at Stanford, that you can't be normal and expect abnormal returns. I've always enjoyed that one, too. Yeah. And one quote that I like, which is the exact opposite of that, is play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Right? A lot of people spend a lot of their time playing social games. 
like on Twitter, where you're just trying to improve your social standing and you basically win stupid social prizes, which are worthless. I guess the last thing that I have from this blog post is just the idea that by pursuing these kinds of luck, especially the last one, basically everything but dumb luck, by pursuing them, you essentially run out of unlock. So if you just keep stirring the pot and stirring the pot, that alone, you will run out of unlock. Yeah, or it could just be a reversion to the mean, right? So then you at least neutralize luck so that it's your own talents that come into play. Next, you go into more specific details on how you can actually get rich and how you can't get rich. The first point was about how you're not going to get rich. You're not going to get rich renting out your time. You must own equity, a piece of a business to gain your financial freedom. This is probably one of the absolute most important points. People seem to think that you can create wealth and make money through work, and it's probably not going to work. There are many reasons for that, but the most basic is just that your inputs are very closely tied to your outputs. In almost any salaried job, even one that's paying a lot per hour, like a lawyer or a doctor, you're still putting in the hours and every hour you get paid. So what that means is when you're sleeping, you're not earning. When you're retired, you're not earning. When you're on vacation, you're not earning. And you can't earn non-linearly. If you look at even doctors who get rich, like really rich, it's because they open a business. They open like a private practice and that private practice builds a brand and that brand attracts people or they build some kind of a medical device or a procedure or a process where they have intellectual property. So essentially you're working for somebody else. And that person is taking on the risk and has the accountability and the intellectual property and the brand. So they're just not going to pay you enough. They're going to pay you the bare minimum that they have to to get you to do the job. And that can be a high bare minimum, but it's still not going to be true wealth where you're retired. And then finally, you're actually just not even creating that much original for society. Like I said, this tweet storm should have been called How to Create Wealth. It's just how to get rich was a more catchy title. But you're not creating new things for society. You're just doing things over and over. And you're essentially replaceable because you're now doing a set role. Most set roles can be taught. If they can be taught, like in a school, then eventually you're going to be competing with someone who's got more recent knowledge, who's been taught and is coming in to replace you. You're much more likely to be doing a job that can be eventually replaced by a robot or by an AI. And it doesn't even have to be wholesale replaced overnight. It can be replaced a little bit of a time and that eats into your wealth creation and therefore your earning capability. So fundamentally, your inputs are matched to your outputs, you're replaceable, and you're not being creative. I just don't think that that is a way that you can truly make money. So everybody who really makes money at some point owns a piece of a product or a business or some kind of IP. That can be through stock options. So if you can be working at a tech company, that's a fine way to start. But usually the real wealth is created by starting your own companies or by, you know, even investors, they're in an investment firm and they're buying equity. So these are much more the routes to wealth. It doesn't come to the hours. You really just want a job or a career or a profession where your inputs don't match your outputs. So if you look at modern society, I get into this later in the tweet storm, businesses that have high creativity and high leverage tend to be ones where you could do an hour of work and it can have a huge effect, or you can do a thousand hours of work and it can have no effect. For example, look at software engineering. One great engineer can, for example, create Bitcoin and create billions of dollars worth of value. But an engineer who's working on the wrong thing or not quite as good or just not as creative or thoughtful or whatever can work for a, an entire year and every piece of code that they ship ends up not getting used. 
customers don't want it. That is an example of a profession where the input and the outputs are highly disconnected. It's not based on the number of hours that you put in. Whereas on the extreme other end, if you're a lumberjack, even the best lumberjack in the world, assuming they're not working with tools, so the inputs and outputs are pretty connected, they're just using an axe or a saw, the best lumberjack in the world may be like 3x better than one of the worst lumberjacks, right? It's not going to be a gigantic difference. So you want to look for professions and careers where the inputs and the outputs are highly disconnected. This is another way of saying that you want to look for things that are leveraged. And by leverage, I don't mean financial leverage alone, like Wall Street uses, and that has a bad name. I'm just talking about tools. We're using tools. Computer is a tool that software engineers use. If I'm a lumberjack with bulldozers and automatic robot axes and saws, I'm going to be using tools and have more leverage than someone who's just using his bare hands and trying to rip the trees out by their roots. Tools and leverage are what create this disconnection between inputs and outputs. Creativity, so the higher the creativity component of a profession, the more likely it is to have disconnected inputs and outputs. So I think that if you're looking at professions where your inputs and your outputs are highly connected, it's going to be very, very, very hard to create wealth and make wealth for yourself in that process. Any other big things you should avoid other than renting out your time? Yeah, there are two tweets that I put out that are related. So the first one I was talking about, we were talking about like how your lifestyle you know, has to upgrade, shouldn't get upgraded too fast. And that one said, people who are living far below their means enjoy a freedom that people busy upgrading their lifestyles just can't fathom. And I think that's very important, like just to not upgrade your lifestyle all the time to maintain your freedom. And it just gives you a freedom of operation. Once you make a little bit of money, you still want to be living like your old self so that just the worry goes away. So don't run out to upgrade that house and lifestyle and all that stuff. Let's say you're getting paid a thousand dollars an hour. The problem is that when you go into a work lifestyle like that, you don't just suddenly go from making $20 an hour to making $1,000 an hour. That's a progression over a long career. And as that happens, one subtle problem is that you upgrade your lifestyle as you make more and more money. And that upgrading of the lifestyle ups what you consider to be wealth, and you stay in this wage slave trap. So I forget who said it. Maybe it was Nassim Taleb, but he said, you know, the most dangerous things are heroin and a monthly salary, right? Because they're highly addictive. The way you want to get wealthy is you want to be poor and working and working and working. And this is, for example, how the tech industry works, where you don't make any money for 10 years. And then suddenly in year 11, you might have a giant payday, which is, by the way, one reason why these very high marginal tax rates for the so-called wealthy are flawed, because the highest risk taking, most creative professions literally lose money for a decade of your life while you take massive risk and you bleed and bleed and bleed. And then suddenly in year 11 or year 15, you might have one single big payday. But then, of course, Uncle Sam show up and say, hey, you know what? You just made a lot of money this year. Therefore, you're rich. Therefore, you're evil. And you got to hand it all over to us. So it just destroys those kinds of creative risk-taking professions. But ideally, you want to make your money in discrete lumps separated over long periods of time so that your own lifestyle does not have a chance to adapt quickly. And then you can say, okay, now I'm done. Now I'm retired. Now I'm free. I'm still going to work because you got to do something with your life, but I'm going to work on only the things that I want when I want. And it's going to be much more creative expression and much less about money. You're not going to get rich renting out your time, but you say that you will get rich by giving society what it wants, but does not yet know how to get at scale. 
That's right. So essentially, as we talked about before, money is IOUs from society saying you did something good in the past. Now, here's something that we owe you for the future. And so society will pay you for creating things that it wants. But society doesn't yet know how to create those things, because if it did, it would need you. They would already be stamped out big time. Almost everything in your house, in your workplace and on the street used to be technology at one point in time. There's a time when oil was technology that made J.D. Rockefeller rich. There's a time when cars were technology that made Henry Ford rich. So technology is just the set of things, as Alan Kay said, that don't quite work yet. Once something works, it's no longer technology. So society always wants new things. And if you want to be wealthy, you want to figure out which one of those things you can provide for society that it does not yet know how to get, but it will want that's natural to you and within your skill set, within your capabilities. And then you have to figure out how to scale it. Because if you just build one of it, that's not enough. You've got to build thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of them. So everybody can have one. Steve Jobs and his team, of course, figured out that society would want smartphones, computer in their pocket that had all the phone capability times 100 and be easy to use. So they figured out how to build that. And then they figured out how to scale it. And then they figured out how to get one into every first world citizen's pocket and eventually every third world citizen too. And so because of that, they're handsomely rewarded and Apple is the most valuable company in the world. The way I tried to put it was that the entrepreneur's job is to try to bring the high end to the mass market. It starts as high end. First, it starts as an act of creativity. First, you create it just because you want it. You want it and you know how to build it and you need it. And so you build it for yourself. Then you figure out how to get it to other people. And then for a little while, rich people have it. Like, for example, rich people had chauffeurs and then they had black town cars. And then Uber came along and everyone's private driver was available to everybody. And now you can even see Uber pools that are replacing shuttle buses because it's just more convenient. And then you get scooters, which are even further down market of that. So you're right. It's about distributing what rich people used to have to everybody. But the entrepreneur's job starts even before that, which is creation. Entrepreneurship is essentially an act of creating something new from scratch, predicting that society will want it, and then figuring out how to scale it and get it to everybody in a profitable way, in a self-sustaining way. Let's look at this next tweet, which I thought was cryptic and also super interesting about the kind of job or career that you might have. You said the internet has massively broadened the possible space of careers. Most people haven't figured this out yet. The fundamental property of the internet, more than any other single thing, is it connects every human to each other human on the planet. You can now reach everyone, whether it's by emailing them personally, whether it's by broadcasting to them on Twitter, whether it's by posting something on Facebook that they find, whether it's by putting up a website they come and access. It connects everyone to everyone. So the internet is an inter-networking tool. It connects everybody. That is its superpower. So you want to use that. What that helps you figure out is that the internet means that you can find your audience for your product or your talent and skill, no matter how far away they are. For example, Nenad, who is Illustratus, if he was in these videos pre-internet, how would he get the message out there? It would just be, what would he do? He would run around where he lives in his neighborhood, showing it to people on a computer or a screen, or he would try to get it played at a local movie theater. It was impossible. It only works because he can put it on the internet. And then how many people in the world are really interested in it or even interested in what we're talking about are really going to absorb it, right? It's going to be a very small subset of humanity. The key is being able to reach them. 
So what the internet does is allows any niche obsession, which could be just the weirdest thing. It could be like people who collect snakes to like people who like to ride hot air balloons to people who like to sail around the world by themselves, just one person on a craft or someone who's obsessed with miniature cooking. Like there's this whole Japanese miniature cooking phenomenon, or there's a show about a woman who goes into people's houses and tidies it up, right? So whatever niche obsession you have, the internet allows you to scale. Now, that's not to say that what you build will be the next Facebook or reach billions of users. But if you just want to reach 50,000 passionate people like you, there's an audience out there for you. So the beauty of this is that we have 7 billion human beings on this planet. The combinatorics of human DNA are incredible. Everyone is completely different. You'll never meet any two people who are even vaguely similar to each other that can substitute for each other. It's not like you can say, well, Nivi just left my life so I can have this other person come in and he's just like Nivi and I get the same feelings, and the same responses and the same ideas. No, there are no substitutes for people. People are completely unique. So given that each person has different skill sets, different interests, different obsessions, and it's that diversity that becomes a creative superpower. So each person can be creatively superb at their own unique thing. But before, that didn't matter because if you were living in a little fishing village in Italy, like your fishing village didn't necessarily need your completely unique skill and you had to conform to just the few jobs that were available. But now today, you can be completely unique you can go out on the internet and you can find your audience and you can build a business and create a product and build wealth and make people happy just uniquely expressing yourself through the internet. Space of careers has been so broadened. Esports players, people making millions of dollars playing Fortnite, people creating videos and uploading them, YouTube broadcasters, bloggers, you know, uh, podcasters, Joe Rogan, I read true or false, I don't know, but I read that he's going to make about $100 million a year on his podcast, and he's had 2 billion downloads. Even PewDiePie, this is a hilarious tweet that I retweeted the other day, PewDiePie is the number one trusted name in news. This is a kid, I think, in Sweden, and he's got three times the distribution of the top cable news networks just on his news channel. It's not even on his entertainment channel. The internet enables any niche interest, as long as you're the best at it, to scale out. And the great news is because every human is different, everyone is the best at something, being themselves. Another tweet I have that is worth weaving in but didn't go into this tweet storm was a very simple one. I like things when they can compress them down because they're easy to remember and easy to hook on to. But that one was escape competition through authenticity. So when you're competing with people, it's because you're copying them. It's because you're trying to do the same thing. But every human is different. Don't copy. I know we're mimetic creatures and Rene Girard has a whole mimesis theory, but it's much easier than that. Don't imitate. Don't copy. Just do your own thing. No one can compete with you on being you. It's that simple. And so the more authentic you are to who you are and what you love to do, the less competition you're going to have. So you can escape competition through authenticity when you realize that no one can compete with you on being you. And normally that would have been useless advice pre-internet, post-internet, you can turn that into a career. Talk a little bit about what industries you should think about working in, what kind of job you should have, and who you might want to work with. So you said one should pick an industry where you can play long-term games with long-term people. Why? Yeah, this is an insight into what makes Silicon Valley work and what makes high-trust societies work. Essentially, all the benefits in life come from compound interests, whether it's in relationships or making money or in learning. So compound interest is a marvelous force where it's like, you know, you start out with 1x what you have. And then if you increase 20% a year for 30 years, it's not that you got 
30 years times 20% added on, it was compounding. So it just grew and grew and grew until you suddenly got a massive amount of whatever it is, whether it's goodwill or love or relationships or money. So I think compound interest is a very important force. You have to be able to play a long-term game. And long-term games are good not just for compound interest, they're also good for trust. If you look at prisoner's dilemma type games, the solution to prisoner's dilemma is tit for tat, which is I'm just going to do to you what you did last time to me with some forgiveness in case there was a mistake made. But that only works in an iterated prisoner's dilemma. In other words, if we play the game multiple times. So if you're in a situation, like for example, you're in Silicon Valley, where people are doing business with each other and they know each other, they trust each other, then they do right by each other because they know this person will be around for the next game. Now, of course, that doesn't always work because you can make so much money in one move in Silicon Valley. Sometimes people betray each other because they're just like, I'm going to get rich enough of off this that I don't care. So there can be exceptions to all these circumstances. But essentially, if you want to be successful, you have to work with other people and you have to figure out who can you trust and who can you trust over a long, long period of time that you can just keep playing the game with them so that compound interest and high trust will make it easier to play the game and will let you collect the major rewards, which are usually at the end of the cycle. So for example, Warren Buffett has done really well as an investor in the US stock market, but the biggest reason he could do that was because the US stock market has been stable and around and didn't get, for example, seized by the government during a bad administration or the US didn't plunge into some war, the underlying platform didn't get destroyed. So in his case, he was playing a long-term game and the trust came from the US stock market stability. In Silicon Valley, the trust comes from the network of people in the small geographic area that you figure out over time who you can work with and who you can't. If you keep switching locations, you keep switching groups, Let's say you started out in the woodworking industry and you built up a network there and you're working hard. You're trying to build a product in the woodworking industry. And then suddenly another industry comes along that's adjacent but different, but you don't really know anybody in it and you want to dive in and make money there. If you keep hopping from industry, to, no, actually, I need to open a line of electric car stations for electric car refueling. That might make sense. It might be the best opportunity. But every time you reset, every time you wander out of where you built your network, you're going to be starting from scratch. You're not going to know who to trust. They're not going to trust you. There are also industries in which people are transient by definition. They're always coming in and going out. Politics is an example of that, right? In politics, new people are being elected. You see in politics that when you have a lot of old timers, like the Senate, people have been around for a long time and they've been career politicians. Yeah, there's a lot of downside to career politicians like corruption, but an upside is they actually get deals done with each other because they know the other person is going to be in the same position 10 years from now and they're going to, have to keep dealing with them. So they might as well learn how to cooperate. Whereas every time you get like a new incoming freshman class in the House of Representatives, which turns over every two years, the big wave election, nothing gets done because there's a lot of fighting. Because I just got here. I don't know you. I don't know if you're going to be around. Why should I work with you? rather than just trying to do whatever I think is right. So it's important to pick an industry where you can play long-term games and with long-term people. So those people have to signal that they're going to be around for a long time, that they're ethical, and their ethics are visible through their action. In a long-term game, it seems that everybody is making each other rich. And in a short-term game, it seems like everybody is making themselves rich. I think that is a brilliant formulation. Yeah, in a long-term game, it's positive sum. We're all baking the pie together. We're trying to make it as big as possible. In a short-term game, we're cutting up the pie. Now, this is not to excuse the socialists, right? The socialists are the people who are not involved in baking the pie who show up at the end and say, I want a slice or I want the whole pie. 
they show up with the guns. But I think a good leader doesn't take credit. A good leader tries to inspire people so that the team get the job done. And then things get divided up according to fairness and who contributed how much or as close to it as possible and took risk as opposed to just whoever has the longest knife, the sharpest knives at the end. So these next two tweets are play iterated games. All returns in life, whether in wealth, relationships or knowledge, come from compound interest. Yeah. When you've been doing business with somebody, you've been friends with somebody for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, it just gets better and better because you trust them so easy that the friction goes down. You can do bigger and bigger things together. For example, you know, the simplest one is getting married to someone, having kids and raising children. Like that's compound interest, right? Investing in those relationships. Those relationships end up being invaluable compared to more casual relationships. It's true in health and fitness. You know, the fitter you are, the easier it is to stay fit. Whereas the more you deteriorate your body, the harder it is to come back and claw your way back to a baseline. It requires heroic acts. Regarding compound interest, I think I saw you retweet something a while back. Maybe it was from Ed Lattimore. It went something along the lines of get some traction, get purchase, and don't lose it. So the idea was to gain some initial traction and never fall back. Just keep ratcheting up and up. I don't remember it exactly, but I think that was right. Yeah, it was like get traction and don't let go. It was a good one. Yeah. In terms of pick people to work with that have high intelligence, high energy, and high integrity. I find that's the three-part checklist that you cannot compromise on. You need someone who's smart or they're heading in the wrong direction and you're not going to end up in the right place. You need someone high energy because the world is full of smart, lazy people. We all know people in our lives who are really smart, but you know can't get out of bed or lift a finger. And we also know people who are very high energy, but not that smart. So they work hard, but they're running in the wrong direction. And smart, it's not a pejorative. It's not meant to be like, Someone's smart, someone else is stupid, but it's more that everyone's smart at different things. So depending on what you want to do well, you have to find someone who's smart at that thing. And then energy, a lot of times people are unmotivated for a specific thing, but they're not motivated for other things. So for example, someone might be really unmotivated to go to a job and sit in an office, but they might be really motivated to go paint, right? Well, in that case, they should be a painter. They should be putting art up on the internet, trying to figure out how to build a career out of that, rather than wearing a collar around their neck and going to a dreary job. And then high integrity is the most important because otherwise, if you've got the other two, what you have is you have a smart and hardworking crook who's eventually going to cheat you. So you have to figure out if the person's high integrity. And as we talked about, the way you do that is through signals. And signals is what they do, not what they say. It's all the nonverbal stuff that people do when they think nobody's looking. With respect to the energy, there was this interesting thing from Sam Altman a while back where he was talking about delegation. And he was saying one of the important things for delegation is delegate to people who are actually good at the thing that you want them to do. It's the most obvious thing, but it seems like you want to partner with people who are naturally going to do the things that you want them to do. Yeah, I almost won't start a company or hire a person or work with somebody if I just don't think they're into what I want them to do. When I was younger, I used to try and talk people into things. That was this idea that you can sell someone into doing something, but you can't. You can't keep them motivated. You can get them inspired initially. It might work if you're a king like Henry V and you're trying to get them to just charge into battle, and then they'll figure it out. But if you're trying to keep someone motivated for the long term, that motivation has to come intrinsically. You can't just create it, nor can you be the crutch for them if they don't have that intrinsic motivation. So you have to make sure people actually are high energy and want to do what you want them to do or what you want to work with them. Reading signals is very, very important. Signals are what people do despite what they say. 
So it's important to pay attention to subtle signals. We all know this socially. If someone treats a waiter or waitress in a restaurant really badly, then it's only a matter of time until they treat you badly. If somebody screws over an enemy and is vindictive towards them, well, it's only a matter of time before they redefine you from friend to enemy and you feel their wrath. So angry, outraged, vindictive, short-term thinking people are essentially that way in many interactions in their life. People are oddly consistent. It's one of the things you'll learn about them. So you want to find long-term people. You want to find people who seem irrationally ethical. For example, I had one friend of mine whose company I invested in, and the company failed, and he could have wiped out all the investors. But he kept putting more and more personal money in. Through three different pivots, he put personal money in until the company finally succeeded. And in the process, he never wiped out the investors. And I was always grateful to him for that. I said, like, wow, that's amazing that, you know, you were so good to your investors, you didn't wipe them out. And he got offended by that. He said, I didn't do it for you. I didn't do it for my investors. I did it for me. It's my own self-esteem. It's what I care about. That's how I live my life. That's the kind of person you want to work with. Another quote that I like, I have a tweet on this. I think I read this somewhere else recently, so I'm not taking credit for this, but I modified a little bit, which is that self-esteem is a reputation that you have with yourself. You'll always know. So good people, moral people, ethical people, easy to work with people, reliable people tend to have very high self-esteem because they have very good reputation with themselves and they understand that. It's not ego. Self-esteem and ego are different things because ego can be undeserved. But self-esteem, at least you feel like you lived up to your own internal moral code of ethics. And so it's very hard to work with people who end up being low integrity. And it's hard to figure out who's high integrity and low integrity. Generally, the more someone is saying that they're moral and ethical and high integrity, the less likely they are to be that way. It's very much like status signaling. If you overtly bid for status, if you overtly talk about being high status, that is a low status move. If you openly talk about how honest and reliable and trustworthy you are, you're probably not that honest and trustworthy. That is a characteristic of con men. So yeah, pick an industry in which you can play long-term games with long-term people. Let's do this last tweet. You okay. said, don't partner with cynics and pessimists. Their beliefs are self-fulfilling. Yeah, essentially... To create things, you have to be a rational optimist. Rational in the sense that you have to see the world for what it really is, and yet you have to be optimistic about your own capabilities and your capability to get things done. We all know people who are consistently pessimistic, who will shoot down everything. Everyone in their life has like the helpful, critical guy, right? He thinks he's being helpful, but he's actually being critical, and he's a downer on everything. That person will not only never do anything great in their lives, they'll prevent other people around them from doing something great. They think their job is to shoot holes in things. And it's okay to shoot holes in things as long as you come up with a solution. There's also the classic like military line, either lead, follow, or get out of the way. And these people want a fourth option where they don't want to lead, they don't want to follow, but they don't want to get out of the way. They want to tell you why the thing's not going to work. And all the really successful people I know have a very strong action bias. They just do things. The easiest way to figure out if something's viable or not is by doing it. At least do the first step and the second step and the third and then decide. So if you want to be successful in life, creating wealth or having good relationships or being fit or even being happy, you need to have an action bias towards getting what you want. And you have to be optimistic about it. Not irrationally. There's nothing worse than someone who's just like foolhardy and chasing them. It's not work. That's why I say rational optimist. But you have to be rational, know all the pitfalls, know the downsides, but still keep your chin up. I mean, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to build something big? 
this is the beauty of Elon Musk and why I think he inspires so many people. It's just because he takes on really, really big, audacious tasks and he provides an example for people to think big. And it takes a lot of work to build even small things. I don't think the corner grocery store owner is working any less hard than Elon Musk or pouring any less sweat and toil into it, maybe even more. But for whatever reason, you know, education, circumstance, they didn't get the chance to think as big. So the outcome's not as big. So it's just better to think big, obviously rationally within your means to stay optimistic. The cynics and the pessimists, what they're really saying and fortunate, but they're saying, I've given up. I don't think I can do anything. And so the world to me just looks like a world where nobody can do anything. And so why should you go do something? Because if you fail, then I'm right, which is great. But if you succeed, then you just make me look bad. Yeah, it's probably better to be an irrational optimist than it is to be a rational cynic. Yeah, there's a completely rational frame on why you should be an optimist. Historically, if you go back 2,000 years, 5,000 years, 10,000 years, two people are wandering through a jungle. They hear a tiger. One's an optimist and says, oh, it's not headed our way. The other one says, I'm a pessimist. I'm out of here. And the pessimist runs and survives and the optimist gets eaten. So we're descended from pessimists. We're genetically hardwired to be pessimists. But modern society is far, far safer. There are no tigers wandering down the street. It's very unlikely that you will end up in total ruin, although you should avoid total ruin. Much more likely that the upside is unlimited and the downside is limited. So adapting for modern society means overriding your pessimism and taking slightly irrationally optimistic bets because the upside is unlimited. If you start the next SpaceX or Tesla or Uber, you can make billions of dollars of value for society and for yourself and change the world. And if you fail, what's the big deal? You lost a few million dollars of investor money and they've got plenty more. And that's the bet they take, the chances that you will succeed. It made sense to be pessimistic in the past. It makes sense to be optimistic today, especially if you're educated and living in a first world country. Even a third world country, I actually think the economic opportunities in third world countries are much larger. The one thing you have to avoid is the risk of ruin. Ruin means stay out of jail. So don't do anything that's illegal. It's never worth it to wear an orange jumpsuit. And stay out of total catastrophic loss. That could mean that you stay out of things that could be physically dangerous, hurt your body. You have to watch your health and stay out of things that can cause you to lose all of your capital, all of your savings. It'll gamble everything at one go. But you take rationally optimistic bets with big upside. I think there's people that will try and build up your ideas and build on your ideas, no matter how far-fetched they might seem. And then there are people who will list out all the obvious exceptions, no matter how obvious they are. And fortunately, in the startup world, I don't even really get exposed to the people that are giving you the obvious exceptions and all the reasons it's not going to work. I barely get exposed to that anymore. That's what Twitter is for. Scott Adams got so annoyed by this that he came up with the phrase, an acronym, which is, but of course there are obvious exceptions, B-O-C-T-A-O-E. And he used to like pin that acronym at the end of his articles for a while. But Twitter is just like overrun with nitpickers. And where exactly as you're pointing out, Silicon Valley has learned that the upside is so great that you never look down on the slobby kid who's wearing a hoodie and has like coffee on his shoes and just looks like a slob because you don't know if he's going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next Reed Hoffman. So you got to treat everybody with respect. You got to look up to every possibility and opportunity because the upside is so unlimited and the downside is so limited in the modern world, especially with financial assets and instruments. Do you want to talk a little bit about the skills that you need, in particular, specific knowledge, accountability, leverage, and judgment? So the first tweet in this area is, 
arm yourself with specific knowledge, accountability, and leverage. And I'll throw in judgment as well. I don't think you covered that in that particular tweet. If you want to make money, you have to get paid at scale. And why you, that's accountability, at scale, that's leverage. And just you getting paid as opposed to somebody else getting paid, that's specific knowledge. So specific knowledge is probably the hardest thing to get across in this whole tweet storm. And it's probably the thing that people get the most confused about. The thing is that we have this idea that everything can be taught. Everything can be taught in school. And it's not true that everything can be taught. In fact, the most interesting things cannot be taught, but everything can be learned. And very often that learning either comes from some innate characteristics in your DNA, or it could be through your childhood where you learn soft skills, which are very, very hard to teach later on in life, or it's something that is brand new, so nobody else knows how to do it either, or it's true on-the-job training because you're pattern matching into highly complex environments, building judgment in a specific domain. Classic example is investing, but it could be in anything. It could be in judgment in running a, a fleet of trucks. It could be judgment in weather forecasting. So specific knowledge is the knowledge that you care about, especially if you're later in life. Let's say you're post-20, 21, 22. You almost don't get to choose which specific knowledge you have. Rather, you get to look at what you have already built by that point in time, and then you can build on top of it. The first thing to notice about specific knowledge is that you can't be trained for it. If you can be trained for it, if you can go to a class and learn specific knowledge, then somebody else can be trained for it too. And then we can mass produce and mass train people. Heck, we can even program computers to do it. And eventually we can program robots to walk around doing it. So if that's the case, then you're extremely replaceable. And all we have to pay you is the minimum wage that we have to pay you to get you to do it when there are lots of other takers who can be trained to do it. So really your returns just devolve into your cost of training plus the return on investment on that training. So you really want to pick up specific knowledge. You need your schooling, you need your training to be able to capitalize on the best specific knowledge. But the part of it that you can get paid for is the specific knowledge. For example, someone who goes and gets a degree in psychology and then becomes a salesperson. Well, if they were already a formidable salesperson and had great salesmanship to begin with, then the psychology degree is leverage. It arms them and they do much better at sales. But if they were always an introvert, never very good at sales, and they're trying to use psychology to learn sales, they're just not going to get that great at it. Specific knowledge is found much more by pursuing your innate talents, your genuine curiosity, and your passion. It's not by going to school for whatever is the hottest job. It's not for going into whatever field investors say is the hottest. Very often, specific knowledge is at the edge of knowledge. It's also stuff that's just being figured out or is really hard to figure out. So if you're not 100% into it, somebody else who is 100% into it will outperform you. And they won't just outperform you by a little bit, they'll outperform you by a lot. Because now we're operating the domain of ideas, compound interest really applies and leverage really applies. So if you're operating with a thousand times leverage and somebody is right 80% of the time and somebody else is right 90% of the time, the person who's right 90% of the time will literally get paid hundreds of times more by the market because of the leverage and because of the compounding factors and being correct. So you really want to make sure you're good at it. So your genuine curiosity is very important. So very often, it's not something you sit down and you reason about. It's more found by observation. You almost have to look back on your own life and see what you're actually good at. For example, I wanted to be a scientist. And that is where a lot of my 
moral hierarchy comes from. I view scientists at the top of the production chain for humanity. And the group of scientists who have made real breakthroughs and contributions have probably added more to human society, I think, than any single other class of human beings. Not to take away anything from art or politics or engineering or business, but without the science, you know, we'd still be scrabbling in the dirt, fighting with sticks and trying to start fires. My whole value system was built around scientists and I wanted to be a great scientist. But when I actually look back at what I was uniquely good at and what I ended up spending my time doing, it was more around making money, tinkering with technology and selling people on things, explaining things, talking to people. So I have some sales skills, which is a form of specific knowledge that I have. I have some analytical skills around how to make money and I have this ability to absorb data, obsess about it and break it down. And that is a specific skill that I have. I also just love tinkering with technology. And all of this stuff feels like play to me, but it looks like work to others. So there are other people to whom these things would be hard. They say like, well, how do I get good at being pithy and selling ideas? Well, if you're not already good at it or if you're not really into it, maybe it's not your thing. Focus on the thing that you are really into. This is ironic, but the first person to actually point out my real specific knowledge was my mother. <laughs> and she did it as an aside, talking from the kitchen. And she said it when I was like 15 or 16 years old. I was telling a friend of mine that I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And she said, no, you're going to go into business. And I was like, what? My mom's telling me I'm going to be in business. I'm going to be an astrophysicist. Mom doesn't know what she's talking about. But mom knew exactly what she was talking about. She had already observed that every time we walked down the street, I would critique the local pizza parlor on why they were selling their slices a certain way with certain toppings and why their process of ordering was this way when it should have been that way. So she knew that I was just had more of a business curious mind. But then my obsession with science combined to create technology and technology businesses where I found myself. So very often, your specific knowledge is observed and often observed by other people who know you well and revealed in situations rather than something that you come up with. To the extent that specific knowledge is taught, it's on the job. It's through apprenticeships. And that's why the best businesses, the best careers are the apprenticeship careers, because those are things society still has not figured out how to train and automate yet. The classic line here is that Warren Buffett went to Benjamin Graham when he got out of school. And Benjamin Graham was the author of The Intelligent Investor and sort of modernized or created value investing as a discipline. And Warren Buffett went to Benjamin Graham and offered to work for him for free. And Graham said, actually, you're overpriced. Free is overpriced. And Graham was absolutely right that when it comes to a very valuable apprenticeship, like the type that Graham was going to give Buffett, Buffett should have been paying him a lot of money. And that right there tells you that those are skills worth knowing. Specific knowledge also tends to be technical and creative. So on the bleeding edge of technology, on the bleeding edge of art, on the bleeding edge of communication, even today, for example, there are probably meme lords out there on the internet who can create incredible memes that will spread the idea to millions of people or are very persuasive. Like, for example, Scott Adams is a good example of this. He's essentially becoming one of the most credible people in the world by making accurate predictions through persuasive arguments and videos. And that is specific knowledge that he has built up over the years because he got obsessed with hypnosis when he was young. He learned how to communicate through cartooning. He embraced Periscope early, so he's been practicing lots of conversation. He's read all the books on the topic. He's employed it in his everyday life. If you look at his girlfriend, she's like this beautiful young Instagram model. That is an example of someone who has built up a specific knowledge over the course of his career. It's highly creative. It has elements of being technical in it. And it's something that is never going to be automated. No one's going to take that away from him because he's also accountable under one brand as Scott Adams. 
and he's operating with the leverage of media with Periscope and drawing billboard cartoons and writing books. He has massive leverage on top of that brand and he can build wealth out of it if he wanted to build additional wealth beyond what he already has. Should we be calling it unique knowledge or does specific knowledge somehow make more sense for it? You know, I came up with this framework when I was really young <laughs> and we're talking decades and decades. It's now probably over 30 years old. And so at the time, just specific knowledge stuck with me. So that is how I think about it. The reason I didn't try and change it is because every other term that I found for it was overloaded in a different way. At least specific knowledge isn't that used. I can rebrand it. The problem with unique knowledge is, yeah, maybe it's unique, but if I learn it from somebody else, it's no longer unique. Then we both know it. So it's not so much that it is unique. It's that it is highly specific to the situation. It's specific to the individual. It's specific to the problem. And it can only be built as part of a larger obsession, interest, and time spent in that domain. It can't just be read straight out of a single book, nor can it be taught in a single course, nor can it be programmed into a single algorithm. Speaking of uh, Scott Adams, he's got a blog post on how to build your career by getting in, say, the top 25 percentile at three or more things. And by doing that, you become the only person in the world who can do those three things in the 25th percentile. So instead of trying to be the best at one thing, you just try to be very, very good at three or more things. Is that a way of building specific knowledge? I actually think the best way is just to follow your own obsession. And somewhere in the back of your mind, you can realize that, hey, actually, this obsession, like I'll keep an eye out for the commercial aspects of it. But I think if you go around trying to build it a little too deliberately, if you become too goal-oriented on the money, then you won't pick the right thing. You won't actually pick the thing that you love to do, so you won't go deep enough into it. Scott Adams' observation is a good one. It's predicated on statistics. Let's say there's 10,000 areas that are valuable to the human race today in terms of knowledge to have. And the number one in those 10,000 slots is taken, right? Someone else is likely to be the number one in each of those 10,000, unless you happen to be one of the 10,000 most obsessed people in the world at a given thing. But when you start going the combinatorics of combining, well, number 3,728 with top-notch sales skills and really good writing skills and someone who understands accounting and finance really well, when the need for that intersection arrives, You've expanded now from 10,000 through combinatorics to millions or tens of millions. So it just becomes much less competitive. Also, there's diminishing returns. So it's much easier to be top 75 percentile at three or four things than it is to be literally the number one at something. I think it's a very pragmatic approach, but I think it's important that one not start assembling things too deliberately because you do want to pick things where you are a natural. Everyone is a natural at something. We're all familiar with that phrase, a natural. Oh, this person's a, a natural at meeting men or women. This person's a natural socialite. This person's a natural programmer. This person's a natural reader. So whatever you are a natural at, you want to double down on that. And then there are probably multiple things you are natural at because personalities and humans are very complex. So we want to be able to take the things that you are natural at and combine them so that you automatically, just through sheer interest and enjoyment, end up top 25 or top 10 or top 5% at a number of things. Talking about combining skills, you said that you should learn to sell, learn to build. If you can do both, you will be unstoppable. You know, this is a very broad category now, but it's two broad categories. One is building the product. 
which is hard and it's multivariate that can include design, that can include development, that can include manufacturing, logistics, procurement. It could even be designing and operating a service. It has many, many definitions, but in every industry, there is a definition of the builder. In our tech industry, that's the CTO, it's the programmer, it's the software engineer, hardware engineer. But, you know, even in like a laundry business, it could be the person who's building the laundry service, who is making the trains run on time, who's making sure all the clothes end up in the right place, at the right time, and so on. Then the other side of it is the sales side. Again, selling has a very broad definition. Selling doesn't necessarily just mean selling individual customers, but it could mean marketing. It could mean communicating. It could mean recruiting. It could mean raising money. It could mean inspiring people. It could mean doing PR. So it's a broad umbrella category. So generally, the Silicon Valley startup model tends to work best. It's not the only way, but it is probably the most common way. When you have two founders, one of whom is world-class at sales and one of whom is world-class at building. An example is, of course, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak with Apple. Gates and Allen probably had similar responsibility early on with Microsoft. Larry and Sergey, you know, probably broke down along those lines, although it's, it's a little different there because that was a very technical product delivered to end users through a simple interface. But generally, you will see this pattern repeated over and over. There's a builder and there's a seller. There's a CEO and CTO combo. And venture and technology investors are almost trained to look for this combo whenever possible. It's the magic combination. The ultimate is when one individual can do both. That's when you get true superpowers. That's when you get people who can create entire industries. The living example is Elon Musk. He may not necessarily be building the rockets himself, but he understands enough that he actually makes technical contributions. He understands the technology well enough that no one's going to snow him on it. And he's not running around making claims that he doesn't think he can eventually deliver. He may be optimistic in the timelines, but he thinks it's within reasonableness of delivery. Even Steve Jobs developed enough product skills and was involved enough in the product that he also operated in both of these domains. Larry Ellison started as a programmer and I think wrote the first version of Oracle or was actually heavily involved in it. Mark Andreessen was also in this domain. He may not have had enough confidence in his sales skills, but he was the programmer who wrote Netscape Navigator, a big chunk of it. So I think the real giants in any field are the people who can both build and sell. And usually the building is a thing that like a salesperson can't pick up building later in life. It requires too much focused time, but a builder can pick up selling a little bit later, especially if they were already innately wired to be a good communicator. Bill Gates famously paraphrased this as, I would rather teach an engineer marketing than a marketer engineering. I think if you start out with a building mentality and you have building skills and it's still early enough in your life or you have enough focused time that you think you can learn selling and you have some natural characteristics where you're a good salesperson, then you can double down on those. Now, your sales skills could be in a different than traditional domain. So for example, let's say you're a really good engineer and then people are saying, well, now you need to be good at sales. Well, you may not be good at hand-to-hand sales, but you may be a really good writer. And writing is a skill that can be learned much more easily than, say, in-person selling. And so you may just cultivate writing skills until you become a good online communicator and then use that for your sales. On the other hand, it could just be that you're a good builder and you're bad at writing and you don't like communicate to mass audiences, but you're good one-on-one. So then you might use your sales skills for recruiting or for fundraising, which are more one-on-one kinds of endeavors. This is pointing out that if you're at the intersection of these two, don't despair because you're not going to be the best technologist and you're not going to be the best salesperson. But 
in a weird way, that combination, back to the Scott Adams skill stack, that combination of two is unstoppable. Long-term, people who understand the underlying product and how to build it and can sell it, these are catnip to investors. These people can break down walls if they have enough energy and they can get almost anything done. If you could only pick one to be good at, which one would you pick? When you're trying to stand up from the noise, building is actually better because there's so many hustlers and salespeople who have nothing to back them up. When you're starting out, when you're trying to be recognized, building is better. But much later down the line, building gets exhausting because it is a focused job and it's hard to stay current because there's always new people, new products coming up who have newer tools and frankly, more time because it's it's very intense, it's a very focused task. So sales skills actually scale better over time. Like, for example, if you have a reputation for building a great product, that's good. But when you ship your new product, I'm going to evaluate it based on the product. But if you have a reputation for being a good person to do business with and you're persuasive and communicative, then that reputation almost becomes self-fulfilling. So I think if you only had to pick one, you can start with building and then transition to selling. This is a cop-out answer, but I think that is actually the right answer. Before we go and talk about accountability and leverage and judgment, you've got a few tweets further down the line that I would put in the category of continuous learning. They're essentially, there is no skill called business, avoid business magazines and business class, study microeconomics, game theory, psychology, persuasion, ethics, mathematics, and computers. There's one other comment that you made in a Periscope that was, you should be able to pick up any book in the library and read it. And uh, the last tweet in this category was, reading is faster than listening, doing is faster than watching. Yeah. The most important tweet on this, I don't even have in here, unfortunately, which is the foundation of learning is reading. I don't know a smart person who doesn't read and read all the time. And the problem is, what do I read? How do I read? Because for most people, it's a struggle. It's a chore. So the most important thing is just to learn how to educate yourself. And the way to educate yourself is to develop a love for reading. So the tweet that is left out, the one that I was hinting at, is read what you love until you love to read. It's that simple. Everybody I know who reads a lot loves to read. And they love to read because they read books that they loved. It's a little bit of a catch-22, but you want to start off just reading wherever you are and then keep building up from there until reading becomes a habit. And then eventually you will just get bored of the simple stuff. So you may start off reading fiction, then you might graduate to science fiction, then you may graduate to nonfiction, then you may graduate to science or philosophy or mathematics or whatever it is. But take your natural path and just read the things that interest you until you understand them. And then you'll naturally move to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Now, there is an exception to this, which is where I was hinting with what things you actually do want to learn, which is at some point, there's too much out there to read. And even reading is full of junk. There are actually things you can read, especially early on, that will program your brain a certain way. And then later things that you read, you will decide whether those things are true or false based on the earlier things. So it is important that you read foundational things. And foundational things, I would say, are the original books in a given field that are very scientific in their nature. So for example, instead of reading a business book, pick up Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Instead of reading a book on biology or evolution that's written today, I would pick up Darwin's Origin of the Species. Instead of reading a book on biotech right now that may be very advanced, I would just pick up The Eighth Day of Creation by Watson and Crick. Instead of reading advanced books on what cosmology and what Neil deGrasse Tyson and Stephen Hawking have been saying, 
you can pick up Richard Feynman's six easy pieces that start with basic physics. If you understand the basics, especially in mathematics and physics and sciences, then you will not be afraid of any book. All of us have that memory of when we were sitting in class and we're learning mathematics and it was all logical and all made sense until at one point the class moved too fast and we fell behind. And then after that, we were left memorizing equations, memorizing concepts without being able to derive them from first principles. And at that moment, we were lost because unless you're a professional mathematician, you're not going to remember those things. All you're going to remember are the techniques, the foundations. So you have to make sure that you're building on a steel frame of understanding because you're putting together a foundation for a skyscraper and you're not just memorizing things because if you're just memorizing things, you're lost. So the foundations are ultra important. And the ultimate, the ultimate is when you walk into a library and you look at it up and down and you don't fear any book. You know that you can take any book off the shelf, you can read it, you can understand it, you can absorb what is true, you can reject what is false, and you have a basis for even working that out that is logical and scientific and not purely just based on opinions. The beauty of the internet is the entire library of Alexandria times 10 is at your fingertips at all times. It's not the means of education or the means of learning are scarce. The means of learning are abundant. It's the desire to learn that's scarce. So you really have to cultivate that desire. And it's not even cultivated. You have to not lose it. Children have a natural curiosity. If you go to a young child who's first learning language, they're pretty much always asking, what's this? What's that? Why is this? Who's that? They're always asking questions. But one of the problems is that schools and our educational system and even our way of raising children replaces curiosity with compliance. And once you replace the curiosity with the compliance, you get an obedient factory worker, but you no longer get a creative thinker. And you need creativity. You need that ability to feed your own brain to learn whatever you want. And to me, foundational things are principles. They're algorithms. They're deep-seated logical understanding where you can defend it or attack it from any angle. And that's why microeconomics is important because macroeconomics, a lot of memorization, a lot of macro bullshit, as Nassim Taleb says, it is easier to macro bullshit than it is to micro bullshit because macroeconomics is voodoo complex science meets politics. You can't find two macroeconomists to agree on anything these days and different macroeconomists get used by different politicians to peddle their different pet theories. There are even macroeconomists out there now peddling something called modern monetary theory, which says, hey, except for this pesky thing called inflation, we can just print all the money that we want. Yes, except for this pesky thing called inflation. That's like saying, instead of limited energy, we can fire rockets off into space all day long. It's just nonsense. But the fact that there are people who have macroeconomists in their title and are peddling modern monetary theory just tells you that macroeconomics as a so-called science has been corrupted. It's a branch of politics. So you really want to focus on the foundations. Foundation, the ultimate foundation are mathematics and logic. If you understand logic and mathematics, then you have the basis for understanding the scientific method. Once you understand the scientific method, then you can understand how to separate truth from falsehood in other fields and other things that you're reading. So be very careful about reading other people's opinions. And even be careful about reading facts because so-called facts are often just opinions, but, you know, with a veneer around them. What you really are looking for is algorithms. What you're really looking for is understanding. It's better to go through a book really slowly and struggle and stumble and rewind than it is to fly through it quickly and say, well, now I've read 20 books. I've read 30 books. I've read 50 books in the field. It's like Bruce Lee said, 
I don't fear the man who knows a thousand kicks and a thousand punches. I fear the man who's practiced one punch 10,000 times or one kick 10,000 times. It's the understanding that comes through repetition and through usage and through logic and foundations that really makes you a smart thinker. To lay a foundation for learning for the rest of your life, I think you need two things if I was going to try and sum it up. One, practical persuasion. And two, you need to go deep in some technical category, whether it's abstract math or you want to read Donald Knuth's books on algorithms or you want to read Feynman's lectures on physics. If you have practical persuasion and a deep understanding of some complex topic, I think you'll have a great foundation for learning for the rest of your life. Yeah, if I could expand that a little bit, I would say that the five most important skills are, of course, reading, writing, arithmetic, and then as you're adding in persuasion, which is talking. And then finally, I would add computer programming, just because it's an applied form of arithmetic that just gets you so much leverage for free in any domain that you operate in. If you're good with computers, if you're good at basic mathematics, if you're good at writing, if you're good at speaking, and if you like reading, you're set for life. So in that sense, business to me is bottom of the barrel. There's no actual skill called business. It's too generic of a thing. It's like a skill called relating, like relating to humans. That's not a skill. It's too broad. So a lot of what goes on in business schools, and there's some very intelligent stuff taught in business schools. I don't mean to detract from them completely. But some of the stuff that's taught in business school is essentially just anecdotes. They call it case studies, but it's just anecdotes. And they're trying to help you pattern match by throwing lots of data points at you. But the reality is you'll never understand them fully until you're actually in that position yourself. Even then, you will find that basic concepts from game theory and psychology and ethics and mathematics and computers and logic will serve you much, much better. So I would focus on the foundations. I would focus with a science bent. I would develop a love for reading, including by reading so-called junk food that you're not supposed to read. You don't have to read the classics. That is the foundation for your self-education. What did you mean when you said that doing is faster than watching? When it comes to your learning curve, if you want to optimize your learning curve, one of the reasons why I don't love podcasts, even though I'm a generator of podcasts, is that I like to consume my information very quickly. And now I'm a good reader, a fast reader, and I can read very fast, but I can only listen at a certain speed. I know people listen to 2x, 3x, but everyone sounds like a chipmunk. And it's hard to go back. It's hard to highlight. It's hard to pinpoint snippets and save them in your notebook and so on. Similarly, a lot of people think they can become really skilled at something by watching others do it or even by reading about others doing it. And going back to business school case study, that's a classic example. You know, they study other people's businesses. But in reality, you're going to learn a lot more about running a business by operating your own lemonade stand or equivalent or even opening a little retail store down the street. That is how you're going to learn on the job because a lot of the subtleties don't express themselves until you're actually running the business. For example, everyone's now into mental models these days, right? You go to Farnham Street, you go to Poor Charlie's Almanac, and you can learn all the different mental models. But which ones matter more? Which ones do you apply more often? Which ones matter in which circumstances? That's actually the hard part. For example, my personal learning has been that the principal agent problem drives so much in this world. It's an incentives problem. You know, I've learned that tit for tat, iterated prisoner's dilemma, is the piece of game theory that is worth knowing the most. You can literally almost put down the game theory book after that. By the way, the best way to learn game theory is to play lots of games. 
I never even read game theory books. I consider myself extremely good at game theory. I've never opened up a game theory book and found a result in there where I was like, oh yeah, that's common sense to me. Because the reason is I just grew up playing all kinds of games and I ran into all kinds of corner cases with all kinds of friends. And so it's just second nature to me. So you can always learn better by doing on the job. But the doing is a subtle thing that we're doing encapsulates a lot. So for example, let's say I want to learn how to run a business. Well, if I start a business where I go in every day and I'm doing the same thing, let's say I'm running the retail store down the street where I'm stocking the shelves with food and liquor every single day, I'm not going to learn that much because I'm repeating things a lot. So I'm putting in thousands of hours, but there are thousands of hours doing the same thing. Whereas if I was putting in thousands of iterations, that would be different. So the learning curve is across iterations. So if I was trying new marketing experiments in the store all the time, I was constantly changing out the inventory. I was constantly changing out the branding and the messaging. I was constantly changing the sign. I was constantly changing the online channels that I was used to drive foot traffic in. I was experimenting with being open at different hours. If I even had the ability to walk around and talk to other store owners and get in their books and figure out how they're running their business, it's the number of iterations that drives a learning curve. 